We have uh, three uh, speakers for this session. Biju, uh, Matthews, Siddharth, Dave, and Bohia. Majunta. Uh, let me just give brief introductions. Biju, uh, you have already met and heard yesterday. Uh, so, we will skip any introduction for him. He is beyond introduction, <laughs> as they say in India. Uh, we have Borya Majumdar, who has uh, published uh, three books. I, I should say, if I'm not mistaken, he's perhaps the first and only historian of sport uh, in coming out of South Asia. Oh, I mean, that, that's an overstatement, but at least okay. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> Uh, he has published uh, two books, uh, very, you know, well received. Uh, one on uh, cricket, which is the, the 22 Yards to Freedom, a social history of Indian cricket. And we, of course, know in what situation Indian cricket is right now, at least Indian cricketers are. Uh, and also a book on football, uh, Goalless, the story of a unique footballing nation, beside uh, and a collection of essays that he edited. Uh, and we have Siddharth Dev, who was uh, training himself to be an anthropologist, but discovered that he is far more useful to the world as a novelist, and thank God for that. Uh, he's, because I, I say that, because his books uh, uh, have been, again, I, I, I confess, as I confess to him, that uh, I have not read any fiction for the last 10 years, so I have not read his books. But uh, I have read reviews of his books, and they certainly sound very different, uh, and much more interesting much more interesting uh, than the, most of the books that I've seen reviewed and discussed. Uh, the two, and he is writing, exploring an area of South Asia, geographical area, but also perhaps an area uh, uh, of mine, uh, uh, landscape of mine also, which is not uh, uh, touched by other writers, the Northeast. India. Uh, his two novels are The Point of Return, published in 2003, and Surface uh, in 2005. So these are the, our speakers. As I said, we will use Bulbul's uh, words as a takeoff point. Uh, she sent this. Uh, email to all of us, and let me just read this. Uh, as you know, the focus of the conference is the second theme session entitled Inside, Outside, Between Text and the World. This session will be held on Saturday, and so forth. It deals with the intersection and overlap between our fairly insular world of academic work on South Asia and the worlds of artists, activists, and other public intellectuals. The goal in one sense is to explore and explode 
some of the perceived boundaries between these two worlds, between serious and popular history, between history and memory, between art and critique, between critical distance and the desire for engagement with the world at large. The broader aim of this conference is to create a forum for an emerging generation of scholars to participate in a day of self-examination about our responsibility to engage with and speak to the world beyond the ivory tower. I don't like that word. Whether through digital media, op-ed writing, film or theater, Basically, we hope for at least a day to cast off the usual strictures of zealous academic disciplinarity in favor of the oscillating dance between the world, the text, and its critic, as adversary put it. Uh, the reason I don't like the word ivory tower because we tend to create our own no matter where we go. Uh, so with that being said, uh, I would like now first to request Siddharth Dev. But the idea is to have five-minute comments from each of the three panelists, and then immediately turn to the audience to ask questions uh, of the panelists as they wish, and also make some comment on the issues that have been raised by the bullying. So, Sutan. Okay. Uh, thank you, and thanks for inviting me here. I think I'll start off very simply because, as we discussed earlier, we'd like to actually have a conversation with everybody out here. But let me start off by talking about my own experience of the cusp between academics and the world of public discourse. I came to New York as a graduate student. I knew I was interested in being a writer. I thought I could do both at the same time. And I came to Columbia. I was in the PhD program. And the world of the text and the critic was one of the books that I checked out of the library once I got there. Um, and I in ended up trying to write my first novel while being while doing coursework. And it's hard, but I actually succeeded. And of course, the experience was slightly schizophrenic in the sense that when I got to Columbia, when I got to the literature department, uh, can everybody hear me? You can shout. Not yeah. Is that required by the... No, this is the mic. Okay. So, um, one of the things that I expected when I got to Columbia, just in the sense that it's in a very large, it's in a very global city, uh, it's in a very diverse city, there's a lot of uh, cultural production that happens there, there's a lot of academic work happens there, and I expected to see some kind of confluence. But I certainly didn't when I was at the department. And uh, I, in fact, never, after the first month or so, I never told anybody that I had any ambitions of being a writer because I had this identity as a critic. I, as a, I had this identity as a graduate student. And I was perfectly comfortable with critical discourse. I didn't have a problem with the theories we were studying. I enjoyed them. I enjoyed that idea, the, you know, the interplay of ideas. So I still do. But I kept it hidden in some sense. And I wanted to write the novel, which, and when I look back at it, you know, I had, I think, very much a novelist impulse. That is, I wanted to create a world of the imagination. I wanted to create a world that had something to say about politics, because I was writing about northeastern India, which is kind of a familiar, unknown space for at least mainstream Indians. I was writing about experiences about migration, post-partition, 
that it seems to me hadn't been really talked about very much. But I was doing it as a novelist. In some sense, I wanted people to enter into this world of storytelling. But it's not that the ideas that I came across as a graduate student were not of use to me. It's not that they were, I mean, I think the divide is artificial. I think the divide is in some sense institutional. I, think, I don't think there's a natural division in any sense between ideas and art um, or sort of public discourse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while writing, okay, I had to sort of wean myself of academic language a little bit. That, because, you know, I was coming into writing the novel having written the graduate papers. I didn't have footnotes. I could use footnotes, but, you know, I could do a very postmodern novel, but I didn't. I didn't have recourse to footnotes. I didn't have recourse, I, was, I couldn't assume that my audience can be referred to a bibliography to pick up certain basic knowledge. No, they, I mean, I had to assume that the audience knows nothing and in some sense everything is on the page. All the, all the parameters, all the, you know, all the guidelines have to be on the page in itself to make them enter this world. I can't you know, to refer them to a bibliography. But in that sense, you know, it's just that I was using narrative, and that is a different site. That that is a different technique, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't meet in, at any point with sort of critical writing. And it was ultimately, you know, I was quite happy that I had spent these years in graduate school, and I didn't finish. I didn't finish my PhD. I, I, you know, I was ABD, and that's it. And I went on to write other novels. I went to write, I write for a large number of general publications. I review books quite a bit. And I can't say that I have found the stuff, the things that I've learned at graduate school not of any use. It's just that I've had to communicate those ideas slightly differently sometimes in, in those you know, more general publications we're talking about. Um, but one of the sense things that I get from talking to again, people who work in the in newspapers, magazines, is that it's not that they, they find, they, there's often a problem, I mean, to put it bluntly to you, one of the friends who's an editor, literary editor, says, well, you know, academics don't like being rewritten. And uh, they don't understand that it's not to dilute their ideas in some sense, but it's that you have to go across in a different way. But there is an interest in ideas, actually, because if the academic world suffers from over-specialization, from not reading beyond your own disciplinary boundaries, I mean, you'll find that the general world, the world of the, the newspaper, the magazine, there's actually, a, the ideas are very shallow, very banal. And actually, a great number of people who work in the industry, who, who work in these, they know this. They are actually interested in people who can bring some of the ideas being talked about in academia into this general field. But that doesn't happen very much, and maybe we can talk about that. I mean, if you take the state of the debate in the university, even if you take something like postcolonialism, which with you're all extremely familiar, if you compare that to the stereotypes in the general media, the way people still write about Middle East or South Asia, you will think that Orientalism had never been written, let alone to speak of being, you know, being absorbed into the academy, built upon. You will, you will think that the mainstream media is operating completely. And that's, in other words, I think we've lost this sort of, you know, touch with this public sphere. And it's not just a fault of academics. It's, it's much more complex than that. But I think we can talk about that to a great extent. Um, I, think, I think that would be mm -hmm. of 
interest, uh, and I would be interested in hearing what you have to say about it. I, to put it bluntly, reading you know Edward Said has made me better as a writer in some sense. You know, having taken a class at Said has made me better as a writer. It hasn't having engaged with ideas in the academy has made me a better fiction writer or and a better critic actually. And I haven't had much difficulty making the transition, but there is a kind of gap. That's. Uh, let me start with this piece of paper. It says cricket historian. You've heard of you've heard of social historian, economic historian, everything, right? I mean, have you heard of cricket historian? <coughs> Weird. First time. I mean, this this is a labeling given to me by the media. I went and said, look, if you want to call me something, call me a sports historian. They said, no, that doesn't sell. We have to label you a cricket historian because that's what the Indian public needs. So that's what we'll call you. <laughs> so you know. Let's, let's get to the basic point. A public intellectual, that's the topic, public intellectual in South Asian scholarship. With, and I'm generalizing here, there can be exceptions, with the kind of salaries academics get in India, can you live a life of respectable existence? No. Period. <coughs> no. Because the salaries for a university professor in, say, a, a leading university, say, say Calcutta University, is 15 to 18,000 rupees, which is $400. With that kind of money, you just can't live a life of respectability. What is the salary of, say, somebody who's an assistant professor, a parallel in the media? Something like a lakh and a half, which is three and a half thousand dollars. So that's the difference. Four hundred dollars and three and a half thousand dollars. And that's where the problem is. In today's South Asia, if you want to be an academic who has some kind of respectability, you have to be a public intellectual. Who are your nation's leading public intellectuals today? Romila Thapa. How do you know Romila Thapa? At least the general mass? Because she writes for Outlook. Just, just take names. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying this is the norm. I mean, I'm saying this is the general practice. There can be some exceptions, but this is the general practice. It has its good sides, it has its bad sides. And why has this become, become the case? Of course, because of the media revolution. The last 15 years in South Asia, we've seen this whole mediatization, the thing has been transformed. Everything, the entire South Asian agenda as far as South Asia is concerned, not here, but in South Asia, is dictated by the media. Take the issues, what are we concerned about in India? What are being debated? Bollywood, cricket, yes, your regular political issues. Things that pertain to the present. Let me just give you, a, and let me just first highlight the bad side of this thing. I was on television the day after India lost, doing a lot of live TV for Times Now, which is a leading satellite channel. And suddenly, I don't want to name the academic, a pretty well-known academic from Delhi calls. It was a call-in program, which was, which was late. I mean, they, they wanted me, so it was said, it was called Call Borea for whatever you want to discuss, right from Tendulkar's funeral to XYZ. <laughs> so this gentleman, I've never, ever known about his interest in cricket. He calls and he says, they, you know, the nation is in mourning. So I said, yes. <laughs> so then I, I just asked, I said, you know, from when have you started taking an interest in cricket? And he was like, oh, this is the nation's single biggest obsession. And something, you know, something just bothered me to ask. I said, so do you know the rules? Do you follow the games? And the anchor just took a lead and said, just being, trying to be cocky, said, so-and-so, if you followed the game last night, just a very stupid question, in cricket, there are three stumps. How many bales are there? 
if anybody follows cricket here. <laughs> and this gentleman in full seriousness said, three stars for three bets. <laughs> you know, that's what the public intellectual has, has come down to. Because everybody wants to make a living out of cricket. Everybody wants to talk cricket because that's what is in fashion. Now that's the bad side of the story. What is the good side of the story? Something that Siddharth was talking about. If you followed the edit pages of your newspapers, 10 years back, if you followed Times of India, and I was talking to a few people in the Times of India, and they tell me that 10 years back, uh, say in a year, 365 days, you will have five pieces by academics. Five. Five op-ed pieces. And rest of the 360 pieces by, by staffers, or journalists, or activists, not academics. But today, if you follow the Times of India over the last year, you will at least have 300 pieces by academics. Dipeshta, for example, has written two pieces over the last six months. Now, you know, I, I call these opened pieces miniature paintings. You have an idea, which is a very serious idea, and it's a challenge to express that idea in 850 to 900 words for your mass. And that's, as far as I'm concerned, an equally serious job as writing an article is, say, of a length of 8,000 words. And that's the good thing as far as the Indian public intellectual is concerned. Straddling both worlds, he can communicate using the, the ivory tar expression. You can come out of your ivory tar, reach out to the mass, make sense of academics in a much more general way. Now, you know, when I, I made the point about I made the point about the bad side of it. Let's see, let me highlight yet another very fundamental thing. Because of the fact that the media dictates this agenda, you know, certain things have just just lost. I mean, certain things have just gone from the Indian landscape. Take the study of Sanskrit, take the study of classics. Rochana was making this point some time back. Where is it now? It's here in the United States. Do we study these things in India that seriously anymore? No. Because the media dictates the agenda. Can you study these things very seriously? No. I, I'm, I'm into a venture these days. I mean, we, we, some of us Shomishta and I, we were doing this thing. We were, we were speaking to a lot of rare booksellers in Calcutta during the Calcutta Book Fair about a month back. And they were like, all of them were telling me, you want this rare book, we can get that book for you from the National Library. Because the National Library, you can get books sold. You can just, just bribe somebody, get a book sold. That, and why? The same question, money. How much do these people get? And the crass thing is, you know, when a serious issue comes up like Nondigram, We've all seen what happened in Bengal a few days back. Initially, all your leading public intellectuals, quote, came out and, and had a point. Good or bad, like it or not, they had a point against globalization, criticized Nondigram. A few days into it, suddenly some of them just, I mean, it was a double turn. And they said, no, Nondigram is OK, because if you don't support Nondigram, then you have to bring BJP into West Bengal. So basically, this was a move dictated by the political party, the CPI. Now that's, that's the other side. If you, if you have to bring the academic voice to the media and justify your stake, that's what the CPIM was trying to do, you end up in a very critical situation. The bottom line is that the public intellectual has a very serious role as far as South Asian scholarship today is concerned. He is the future. There is no doubt about that because there is no escaping the fact that the media will dictate South Asian politics, the agenda in the next 10 to 20 years. What is needed is a line, a line that needs to be drawn. Where do we stop? And if the three bales are an indication, 
<laughs> we have to stop right there because more seriousness needs to be brought into the agenda. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, again, just, I mean, I, what, what I want to do is kind of very, very briefly speak about, I think, the various kinds of options we have in terms of the engagement of the larger public world. Um, at the end of my the, the plenary, the keynote yesterday, the last one of the last questions asked was so in the line between the academic and let's say an activist at the other end, where can one locate oneself? One doesn't have to go all the way to the other end, and I think that's the that's the point. There are so many locations available along that line, and I think it's for us to really think through and decide, make make a choice as to where to locate ourselves on that line, and. You know, in, in, in my own case, for instance, I mean, I am an academic by definition. If you really just look at my tax returns, I am an academic. And uh, I mean, I have to talk about taxes. taxes so. um, but, but, um, um, what, well, so, but, but I choose to deploy myself in a particular way. I teach hardcore techie stuff for a living. I teach, you know, I, I teach network design and, you know, stuff like that for a living. And uh, that's what my uh, PhD is in. But what I have also chosen to do is to locate myself at various other registers. Yesterday, one other intervention that came up and my response to it was that, you know, I think we have to take our notion of an intellectual as different from the academic very seriously. I think there are ways of being an intellectual and the, and the, and the idea of an intellectual belongs to the world, not to the ac academy per se. The idea of the academic belongs to the academy per se may be, but the idea of an intellectual belong, belongs to the world at large. And therefore, we can make our choices to where we locate ourselves in, in that space. So, um, and you know, oftentimes, again, when I speak about it with people, the things that we hear is, you know, the media is not really interested, the media is so controlled, we can't get our word in, things like that. But I think all of that is not, I mean, some of it may be true, some of it may be that there, there is a certain amount of learning curve and experience and, a, and an effort that needs to be made to be able to do some of this. Uh, as Siddharth was also saying, you know, it's like um, the, the, the capacity to write to a particular set of requirements is, is indeed an important one. But you can choose to locate yourself in so many different ways. For instance, I mean, I just, I, I mean when I think about my own public writing, I have my book that's come out. But when I think about my own public writing, uh, one of the things I have chosen to do is to say is is to focus almost entirely on really small. For the last two, I gave myself an agenda for around three years. I gave myself an agenda that was to focus almost entirely on small lefty publications. Right. The reason I did that was because I, I, I mean, I I felt, for instance, over the last five seven years ever since the whole war situation began, that there was a growing politicization of the, of the American, um, of, of people in general. And within that, the left had to play a particular role. The left may never be powerful in the US, but it still has a particular role to play, play out. And therefore, for instance, some of the largest contradictions I felt was the very fragmented left. Amongst the, amongst the group within the left that had the maximum momentum and was in an upsurge, Already, because of the anti-globalization struggles were the anarchists. 
right? And so I began writing a series of small little pieces aimed almost entirely at the anarchists, right? In small lefty publications, you know, Left Turn, Crosswind, this, that, etc. And the basic idea was, how do you resolve your question of organization? How do you work with other groups? when the other groups don't have the same kind of resources in terms of time that a young anarchist group does, right? So the attempt was to change discourse there within that crowd. The, that, that, those set of writings, those set of ideas and, and the discourse that surround, come, comes up around that will never surface into the larger media. And I was aware of it right from the word go when I went into that process. Now, at this point, I've reached a point wherein I, felt, I feel that, you know, I need to move into a slightly more broader domain. And, you know, it's a matter of thinking through that and locating oneself and going about the task. I really think the most important reason why people within the academy don't end up writing is because over the last 20 years, one of the things, I mean, we, I mean this is not some, something that I kept emphasizing yesterday also. And I think in a certain sense, this is what Borea was also talking about, that we have to understand the context. The context that we live in is a hyper-marketized context. And if you're thinking about a hyper-marketized context, just also assume that it has an impact on your own sub subjectivity, your own subjectivity, how one thinks about oneself, right? So I think in significant ways, I think we've stopped looking at the world uh, that, that the critical distance, the idea of critical distance has been pulled so much that we've stopped looking at the world through any kind of an ethical framework, right? And it is, so we have one life which is trading in these symbols within, within the academic domain. And there's another life which is the other part of the construction meaning which is located within the role, within this world as consumers, right? And these two somehow suffice and you can live life, you can go on living year after year with a certain amount of pleasure just doing this much. It is the abandonment of an ethical framework that stops us from engaging further out. And I think it's that, I think, that we need to take ourselves seriously on. And if you give, your, give ourselves the ethical framework, I think we'll find small little ways of engaging. It doesn't have to be big. It could be, you know, uh, figuring out how to use the electronic media. It could be, you know, figuring out, finding one or two groups in the city and saying, how do I link myself up with them and do some interesting work alongside them, you know? Stuff like that. So I'll just stop here. Let's have a conversation. Uh, well, I would like to now turn to you. Let's ask you for question, Dipesh Babu. May I? May I? May I? Yes. Allow me just. I think it will bring in because you are. So far as I know, you are the person who also writes in Bengali you know, when you write beyond the academic world. Uh, because I think in the context of South Asia, in context of India, it is very important. There is an in English-speaking universe there, an English media. And a lot of public figures, Romila Thapar does not write in, in Hindi. Vernacular. In vernacular. You know, so you, so you, but you do, and you have been doing it. And the, my question that I would like is, what risk do you think you are taking when you do that? Do you feel any sense of risk or problem there? Because I think that would be... Yeah, well, I mean, there are two things. One is writing in two languages, and the other one is living in three contexts. 
you know, part of me lives in Calcutta, part of me lives in Chicago, and part of me lives in Canberra. But the, what I meant was in terms of the misun being misunderstood by the audience, by the reader, in any way. Misun being misunderstood is the risk one takes in any conversation. I mean, in other words, part of the risk of any engagement is that you will be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the way you overcome misunderstanding is through sustaining the engagement. As in a friendship, you know, the first day somebody misunderstands you. The second day things become too clear because one never knows either myself or the person listening to me. Neither of us actually knows ever exhaustively the meaning of what's being said. That's that's, mm -hmm. But what I find interesting about writing in Bangla, as distinct from writing in English, um, I mean, first of all, you become, uh, I mean, I'm just, in the, I'm just in the middle of translating uh, a lecture I originally gave in Bangla at the last Catholic Book Fair into a lecture I'll be uh, giving in Colombia <laughs> next weekend. And, it's, and I'm having to do with interesting changes because the audience mm. is different. And it was in Calcutta, it was a public lecture, 500 people, anybody came. Um, you know, people's mothers in law came, people who are not academics came, and whereas Colombia is an academic exchange. Personally, I feel that one needs to live in as many worlds as possible. In other words, if one can proliferate, Mm -hmm. the number of worlds that one speaks to, one gets a sense of the, the diversity and the richness of this world. Because I think the, the risk we run in living metaphorically in any monolinguistic world, metaphorically, just metaphorically monolinguistic, I mean, Bitcoin is speaking different language, but they think the same language, um, is that the world <coughs> ends up getting frozen. And, and that's why I said, you know, now that I live the year in three countries, um, I mean, I had uh, occasion to remark on this uh, uh, a different situation. The meaning of the English word leftist changes from America, you know, to India, <laughs> to Australia. The meaning of the word, word right changes from the US to India to Australia. And, uh, you know, Things that Indian historians take for granted, never even reflect on, come up in debates on in Aboriginal history, or say in American history, or in American, you know, uh, First Nations history. So, what I mean, I basically I go back to Amitabh Bhagwan's uh, anti-clan. I think mm -hmm. the best position is that of a traveler. In and out of words. Now, please, yes. This is, a, this is a simple question. This is from again from ignorance. I haven't been back to India back home in nine years, and I'm unfamiliar with a lot of the, the developments of communication. My question actually is because since I'm completely inept at anything but writing, and I'm not very good at that being an academic, um, what are people reading? You know, and the, question, the reason I'm asking is my brother is in marketing, and he's always chiding me for working on these obscure texts that are of interest <laughs> in the Indian heritage, right? Um, but working on it here is a really point because I, I couldn't do it in India. But he wants me to do documentaries, he wants me to make films, he's even suggested comic books. And he's always trying to push me, and every time I suggest that, I just would like to finish my dissertation by many people. <laughs> when I'm really adventurous, I suggest the model of science writing because scientists have no problem communicating with the public. Yeah, if you 
or do I need a whole story with my a lot of titles where things are said pretty plainly to the common person. But he is convinced that humanities, it's not going to happen. Nobody's reading. And I wonder if there's no from anybody in the panel, is, is that true? And if so, what are people reading in India, in what language? And yeah, please. Uh, difficult to pinpoint and say what people are reading, but the scenario is not as grim as, you know, you certainly have a career, so your book will be published, you will have a career, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> The thing is, people are reading. People are reading because if you let's let's get to the hard basics. If you if you ask me in terms of uh, uh, academic stuff, the number of publishers from ten years back have doubled. You can see, and because I do a lot of publishing, I'm into this. I can see publishers in the West, in London, in here. If you if anybody's been to the Frankfurt Book Fair, South Asia is the flavor. Everybody wants a share of the South Asian pie. If you, if you, Jane Friedman, for example, from HarperCollins, goes to India and says we'll invest $4 million in India, so go bang on. So the social science scene is not as grim at all, okay? As far as what people are reading, the common man on the street, if you've seen the number of magazines that have, that, that do come out these days, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a position to give you a stat, but I can, I can certainly say that the figure is three times what it was in the 1990s. Now, just a basic analogy. I mean, if people are not reading, then how can these, these magazines come out? What is the economy? Where are they getting ads from? How are people getting employed? Just the, just the whole cycle. So the reading thing is not as bad. And thirdly, websites. The number of news channels that there are now, 56, 24-hour news channels, all of these news channels, most of them at least, have websites. People from the South Asian diaspora, the number of blogs that have proliferated, you can see people engaging in different kind of arguments. Picking up from one website on a certain issue which they've read and then discussing it on the web in the form of a blog. So the reading habits haven't gone. Yes, this is a very common refrain to say, no, people are not reading. And the, the thing is a closed door. I don't agree to that. As far as the regional language press is concerned, in Calcutta over the last year, three new papers have come out. Three new newspapers. Each of these newspapers now have circulations of over 25,000, 30,000. And all the newspapers, I mean market, analysis, market analysts have, have predicted that each of these newspapers have the potential to grow. And I know the Calcutta market because I write for one of them. So the situation is not as grim as, you know, as some of us tend to think in the West. No, no, but you said social science, and this is part C. How particular is the market with which people are interested in South Asia. I mean, my experience has been that it's usually indexed to contemporary. Yeah. Consent. Usually, sometimes post-nuclear, right? I mean, like, at least the way I look and sometimes, the, I mean, I don't mean to do that, that's a gentle, that's an impression I have, but it's certainly contemporary. Contemporary, sure. I mean, that's that's yeah. something I was saying, but. Right. But what do us, uh, what, what would you suggest then for the role of academics that See, that's, that's what I was, I was trying to get at. Because, and that's a problem with the media. Because the media lives for today and now. And you can't go and fundamentally change the media and get them interested in 17th century stuff. So that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. I mean, that's where the public intellectual and the academics face this real challenge. I mean, we, we, as, we as academics, I mean, how can you make the 18th and the 19th century more relevant to now? Let me give an example that Dipeshta was giving me yesterday. We were talking about Indian, Indian cricket and about a piece that I am doing this week. So I was asking him, I said, why do you think Tendulkar has this you know, overbearing persona? I mean, why, why do you think 
anything that he says is law. And, and we were discussing this and he said, look, this is, a, this is a thing that comes down from the Indian practice of bhakti, from the medieval times. So you can basically link the medieval with the modern. This is where, you know, and I said, why don't you write this? Because this is where, I mean, not, no media person will think along these lines and write this. He or she will stop saying Tendulkar defines Indian cricket. But if you can make these broad, you know, these, these far deeper linkages and make them in a way that is more accessible to the common man, then the medieval becomes more relevant for the modern. And that's where the public intellectual can become much more, you know, what, what to say, his role becomes much more interesting. So, yes, that's not being done to the extent it should be, but at least, as I said, number of edits by academics have gone up, and this, is, this has started. So it's not a grim scenario. I'm a born optimist, so I will always give you a positive picture. Hi, do you, do you yeah. want to say? Yeah, just very quickly to add to what Boria said, and I think the uh, initial part of what I was going to say has been just covered, which is that I think the starting point is what are our public concerns. Right? So if there's things about the world around us here or the things about the world around us in India or so, so generally South Asia that concern us. That contemporary point of concern is just a start point. And I think there are all sorts of interesting ways of connecting it to the past, to literature, to all sorts of domains. And I think that's the genius that the academic can have because of the breadth of their reading and the depth of their reading. And I think that's how we deploy ourselves. But the other part, I think, of what we need to say is that in terms of reading, we have to look at the concept of being, literate, being uh, literate in terms of how many people are literate, how many people can read, etc., etc. And though, as Boria said, there's a burgeoning of that market also, um, I think the thing to remember is, to not, is that the most natural world that a larger and larger number of people in India will gravitate towards is the spoken word. Right? So I think, for instance, the reason why television is, uh, is more and more popular is not necessarily only because of the visual attraction, but because of the fact that the, the, the audio, because of the audio part of the, of, of the audiovisual. Right? I am predicting that radio is going to make a really big comeback in India, across India, not just urban. In urban India, radio has already become big once again. But I think radio is going to make a big comeback even in rural India, across the board. The community radio regulation just went into effect in India around two months ago. And the amount of interest there is around community radios is huge. I mean, uh, the people most interested, of course, I mean, the reason why I know this is because I've been doing a project of building radio stations in, in India for, with, with various movement groups for the last uh, eight, eight, ten months. And the reason why I got into it is because the people who have most interest in community radio as a project was the RSS. They got off the bat, they got off on that more than a year and a half ago and started building that. Right? So, I mean, I think the, or, or the audio medium is something that we really need to think about as to how we use it, how we'll engage, how we'll move into that. The problem I see with the model that you're laying out here is that essentially if the past is going to serve any purpose, it has to serve a genealogical purpose. The past exists in the servants of the present. The problem with this is this is a form of interpretive of violence against the actual interpretive hermeneutic of Indian civilization for much of its history, where in which this is the whole problem with history in India in some sense. In effect, the text that we are working on as somebody who works in the pre-modern period fundamentally rejects that whole way of being 
that whole way of understanding everything in terms of this weak narrative of moving towards a progress towards some distant goal in the in the future, as opposed to the idea, say, of a, of a, a Kurta age in the back hanging around there in the background, from which you know the good comes from. This idea of the good is being in the future, uh, and to not communicate that is fundamentally to do a disservice and to 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 be dishonest about what the tradition is saying. So the question is, is, is some of us may very well be incommensurable. The actual study of history for its own sake, of texts for their own sake, and the worlds that they inhabit may fundamentally be being rejected because it is the antithesis of everything that people are looking for right now. Anybody? Uh, I'll take it. Uh, I'll take it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I think maybe you're making the mistake of putting too large an assumption on a very large body of people. I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, I know I may sound banal, but how can you assume? It's true. I mean, if I can tack your question into your point, it's true. Someone in marketing, the middle class, they are, they are going to try and say, what is the market value of anything you do? But that's not a question just happening in India. That's a question you will see increasingly happening in your American universities right now, the professionalization and humanities, social sciences. Your situation is much better than ours. It's infinitely better. There well, are actual people reading. Well, and there are actually yeah. the emergence of academics into the discourse as opposed to a complete rejection of learning as a, a feat, you know, well, disease. We'll, we'll, have, to, we'll have to get into that. That's, that's interesting. But that professionalization, that model, will be actually, you know, it's already traveling from here to there because, you know, you have to look at how globalization works on that layer. But that's happening. But that doesn't mean that you can't do anything. I mean, who says that there's a way to publish novels about the northeast of India and make a living? Who knows the northeast of India? But, you know, it can be done. Mm -hmm. It can be done fairly well. And the point is, if, you're, if the material that you're all working on is inherently interesting, it is a question of being able to communicate that interest beyond your specialization, beyond your group, beyond people who've already read the primary and the secondary text to other people. You have to have some level of faith in that. The material you're working on, if you're saying, and just going back to your question, if the past is not dead, and it's not necessarily in the service of the present, it's not making a teleological argument like that, but if it's inherently interesting, surely there is a way to oh, actually, there is actually a way, and you're not necessarily going to have you know, television shows about it all over the country, but you will certainly find some people willing to, you know, actually engage with this. I, I agree with I agree with him. Uh, you know, everything which which is of relevance can be done with a meaningful context. The thing is to locate it in a particular context and give it some meaning. I mean, if you are insular, then your problem is you are insular. The world is not. So that that that's the problem. I mean, if you consider yourself to be working in that cocoon and you tell yourself, look, what I'm saying to the world is opaque, then it is opaque. Make it meaningful. There are people, even if there is a small constituency of people, there is a constituency of people that will find you meaningful. And I'm absolutely certain about this in India. The country offers in its diversity that very constituency which will make your work meaningful. Again, I mean, this optimism comes through when, when I keep, because at the end of the day, I'm in love with that country. And there is a constituency which will find you interesting, which is why, which is why Indian studies here is flourishing. I mean, that, that has to rub off because that country has produced all of these interesting things, which is why you're studying it in the first instance. So it's, it's not that the relevance has gone. It is there. Yes, yes. I mean, it won't be as savvy as, say, Bollywood. 
Not necessary always, right? It has to be savvy. It, it shouldn't be. But it's there. Just to, uh, just, admit, just to quickly intervene and just lay something out. It is, let's say the question in a certain sense is, how do I be true to the endeavor that I am already in and still be, you know, quote unquote, be able to write for, let's say, a larger audience? And if that's the question, I think as long as you can disconnect from the teleology, from this has to be in service of that program, something programmatic, I think you're fine. Frankly, I think the role of the public intellectual is to even if it is to create a mess, that's a good role, right? To pull back and say, wait a minute, we are all seemingly headed in this one direction, but there is a tradition that doesn't do that. And just to be able to articulate precisely that and to create a mess within what seems like an already too well-framed debate is itself a service, right? So I think there are so many ways of entering this. Uh, actually, I wanted to connect all of this, going back to your point of sort of moving between academia and the public world, uh, to a debate we were having, uh, having in the last session, which was about uh, academic ways and affective ways of uh, writing. Because uh, I think, and I think this would be, uh, that debate was about how in, academ in academia, and this is a broad generalization, the affective uh, uh, sort of gets sidelined. And that's a particular evidentiary problem. That we all are in academia for reasons because we are moved by something. At least in the social sciences, mm -hmm. it's a fairly simple thing to say. But that doesn't necessarily make its way in as an evidentiary thing. Mm -hmm. of, uh, and so because it's not treated as an evidentiary claim, we don't even write it. Mm -hmm. And to communicate to a larger public world, perhaps that affective mode needs to be regained in a certain sense, or at least written about to take uh, that thing. And I think the movement between, I've in certain senses made the opposite movie you've made up, being a writer and now I mean, having written for a living and then turned to anthropology. So for me it's not a problem, I can write, I think I can still write in affective modes, maybe a few more years will kill that. But, and the other thing was that, uh, which Virgil uh, uh, and Kristen uh, tried to do is to the diversity of forms that are not addressed within academia but which can be. Uh, because academia seems to be a sort of close circle in which there is a very particular form in which you produce material. But if academia was open to more uh, formal experimentation in the ways in which one would present one's work, uh, then perhaps, and linking that to affective modes as well. And linking it to different ways, and uh, now I'm sort of going off on a tangent of forms. Blogs are interesting. This uh, Malan here and me, uh, we are people who put a lot of our academic work or things that we're thinking about out there on the blog to communicate to the wider world, which intersects with but is beyond the academy as well. And perhaps there are these different modes of uh, publicness mm -hmm. with which the academia, uh, academia can now engage, which need to be thought about. And just a couple of really quick reactions. I think there is an interesting way of I can turn the question uh, on its head in the sense that I think within, if, it, if I take a sample of academic writing itself, what is clearly defined as academic writing, I think you'll find a really interesting variation even within there of how much the affective comes in. I mean, I, there are some really, you know, really just sticking to the craft of what is called a particular kind of scientific discourse writing to that, to people who write with, with an undertone of the affective that comes in. I'm actually reminded of 
you know, the patient's uh, writing within the academic domain itself. Where, yeah, no, no, I'm saying there is that affective that comes in, there's an undertone which keeps you going, which keeps you drawing you in. So that's one. At the other end, if you look at op-ed pieces, let's say if I pick up a, a copy of Times of India or the Hindu and read the op-ed, there are some people who present themselves because they are academic, there's clear cut and dry analysis. When they take the affective out, even though they may be capable of writing within the affective form. For instance, I find several of somebody like Gail Ombud's op-eds doing precisely that. Right? So I think you know there is a fair amount of leeway in terms of how one operates also. More questions? Yes, please. I, think, I agree with all of that. I just think it's important to distinguish between the affective and the personal. One can be trivially autobiographical. Yeah. And that's not the same thing. And one can be affective, they're not the same thing. I just want to. Absolutely. I just wanted to bring up what was brought in the previous talk yesterday, essentially about um, I, think, I think the disconnect between intellectuals and, uh, and the state instead. Uh, is actually not that much because in India, I mean, in general, the, the assumption is that intellectuals feed into the state, program of the state, and so the idea, I think, would be to see alternative ways of thinking about institutions themselves, uh, perhaps the ac academic institution, about the role of academic institutions, but I think the connection between academic institutions and states are uh, much more direct than the, for instance, simple example of a textbook and how textbook gets produced in a certain kind of society and culture is the result of academic scholarship, which becomes very much public opinion after a point of time. And so I think that academics have a much sort of stronger link than we think that they have. And I think the challenge then is to really see what kind of publication we are shaping in the long term. I think we have a person who is most capable of responding and, or at least adding to well, our discussion. Uh, Dipesh Prabhu, will you please introduce the person? Yeah, we have Ms. Anidadri Patachari from Delhi here, and Anidadri was in charge of getting all the history textbooks um, rewritten right. and, and, and be rid of the viruses that uh, <laughs> the BJP had introduced. So I think Anidadri is in an excellent position. <laughs> textbook society historians larger yes could you please uh, you know we should be missing out on this come come, come here, here. Oh. and other yeah. uh, just two three small points uh, one is that uh, when i think in the discussion here um, the focus actually has been on the english public um, it's not just the patients writing in bengali but uh, a lot of other Bengali writers are writing, but if you see the Hindi public or the South Indian, all the languages, there is a vibrant academic debate, theoretical conceptual debate in the public domain. Therefore, we shouldn't forget that there is uh, there is a much wider public in India, and it's not just the English public. So the first point I'd like to make is that there are many publics, and uh, within that many public, there is uh, there are many kinds of audiences being addressed by people who are talking whether about public issues or about conceptual issues. Now, I thought in the discussion here, and this, I'm not talking about the textbooks, Virginia. In the discussion here, there are two ways in which the public intellectuals have been uh, talked of. One is uh, taking your own uh, academic work onto, into the public and making them aware of what is happening. The other is what Gloria was raising, and uh, 
which we can uh, talk about or think about is how does an intellectual, as an intellectual, intervene within the public sphere in picking up public issues and inflecting them, reflecting on them and making a conceptual point which uh, takes the discussion from the mundane or taken for granted uh, world of, uh, uh, you know, uh, where uh, it's not being conceptually reflected upon, but making people think about issues more conceptually, theoretically, and informing that in ways. And there, I think, uh, in India, we haven't had a long tradition of it, but it is spreading, it's becoming, uh, you can see that much more now. For, you know, the in the 50s and 60s, until the early 70s, a lot of intellectuals uh, inspired by the early Nehruvian um, uh, socialism and uh, liberalism and uh, optimism of the time, they intervened in the public much more. But the 70s and 80s, I think there was a withdrawal of intellectuals. In the 90s, from the mid-90s, I think the, uh, the critical language has reached the public much more. And people are intervening much more consciously. Uh, and I think it has something to do with the change of politics in India. So there is, uh, there are two kinds of uh, interventions here. One, taking your language, uh, your own theory, research to the public, and other uh, intervening there. There, I think, the the fear that what you are writing does not, uh, might not actually be received by the public. I think that's a false fear because there are many publics there. There is a public which will reflect on conceptual works. There is a public which is uh, interested in uh, the public issues coming up. The textbook, the textbook and the public, I think it's a, um, it's a very complicated issue. You know, in the um, in the again the fifties and sixties, um, when intellectuals like Romila Tapa, Bipin Chandra, and others intervened and began writing textbooks for the public. They had a different kind of a notion of a public intellectual. They felt they had to mold the nation uh, into na secular, national, uh, secular national citizens of a new state or new society. So I, uh, by the 70s and 80s, that kind of commitment to create the new citizen of a uh, secular national citizen, I think that wasn't there. The, um, uh, people who were writing textbooks began, other, it's not just these uh, NCRT textbooks which have been written, but the BJP and others began writing texts. And um, uh, oh, the schools which were uh, actually studying those texts were again committed to creating another kind of a uh, citizen. That is, uh, their world, their worldview and conception was being uh, transmitted through the text. In the 90s, many of us began to feel uh, as again uh, intellectuals interested in critically intervening within the public, we began to feel that there has to be a critique both of the BJP type and the older kind of notions where we cannot see our function as, uh, of, uh, we cannot see ourselves as creating only national, secular, nationalist citizens committed to these ideas, but creating critical individuals. So our commitment now, some of us, there were 50, 60, 70 historians, we have been working on the new textbooks, uh, uh, is to, uh, the ideal is to create critical intellectuals and make people reflect on things about the past or the present in ways which will make them as possibly critical citizens rather than citizens who are committed to a particular uh, uh, 
um, national, secular kind of a thing. And once you are critical citizens, then you can critically reflect on other things. So uh, that's the way I think many uh, uh, many historians, many uh, uh, intellectuals in India would like to think of the role of public individuals in creating critical consciousness within the public sphere through which we can actually begin to reflect on everything. We have time for just one new question. Otherwise, uh